record. Oh, it's recording. Okay, cool. Um, welcome back to Nyakcast, everyone. I'm Mona Mostatabi, Nyak's comms director, and I'm joined by the whole or big part of the Nyak crew today. I've got Nyak President Jamal Abdi, our research fellow, Dr. S.L. Rad, and our amazing policy director, Ryan Costello. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello. So it's two years since the United States abrogated the Iran nuclear deal, which has culminated in so many successes. I mean that sarcastically. Uh, I'm not sure this like max pressure campaign that they implemented has really worked. We did, you know, if, if the intent was to take us as close to war as possible, then it certainly was a success. Um, you know, Iran, there's no evidence that Iran is currently pursuing a nuclear weapon, uh, you know, but they are definitely closer to being able to produce one than they were two years ago. Um, so I don't know, are we, I don't know that we're much safer today, two years out from a deal that was probably one of the most significant non-proliferation agreements that has ever existed. Well, I think, you know, it often comes up like whenever something, you know, bad happens with Iran now, everybody jumps on and says, oh, yeah, maximum pressure is really working and delivering, guys. But like the, the people who designed this strategy didn't, you know, set out uh, to make everything hunky-dory with Iran. Uh, that was what, like, the people who did the JCPOA tried to do, is actually resolve conflicts and so, so forth. They really, uh, you know, tried to upend that diplomatic strategy and uh, stoke chaos. Uh, and, you know, whether it's for uh, regime change being the ultimate goal or whether to instigate a war, uh, like, that's what the, the people are who are designing this strategy are really out for. They're trying to sabotage the basis of trust so that diplomacy uh, can never succeed again. And by that metric, you know, I think they have, uh, you know, succeeded a great deal. Uh, whether they'll ultimately be successful in eliminating diplomatic pathways forever, I think remains to be seen. But for now, there's no diplomacy, and that's their goal. I mean, what's most interesting is before we abrogated the JCPOA, I think the notion of war with Iran was it just wasn't, it wasn't fathomable. And the fact that we're now continually having to focus on war powers acts and looking for ways to, you know, rein in our president. Uh, I think it says a lot about, you know, the JCPOA, not just, you know, keeping Iran from nukes, but the JCPOA as a vehicle to really, you know, cement peace. Um, and so just this week, actually, Trump vetoed a War Powers Act that would have, you know, limited his own ability to launch a strike on Iran. And then the Senate failed to override the veto. Um, and in a statement, Trump actually called the resolution insulting. Uh, he labeled it a political ploy by Democrats uh, intended to divide Republicans that had ahead of the November elections. And I honestly, I think the best part of his response, his reasoning for vetoing is that this, that the few Republicans that did vote on it were confused about the rule of law. Um, and it just seems that there's so much irony about this man who, you know, where everyone is struggling so hard. Everyone is saying, look, you, you are the one that is deviating from rule of law. And yet he has essentially, I'm sorry, but the balls to come out and say those you don't understand, you guys don't understand the constitution. I mean, so what's next? Like, is there, what kind of movement, what kind of restraints can we ensure in place if we don't have a diplomatic deal with them, if our own elected officials can't rein them in, what do we do to insist peace move forward? Wait, are we operating under the assumption that he's read the constitution? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. No, this you're right. I shouldn't assume. To, no, no, you're to, right. I shouldn't assume. 
to think that he's actually read the document and is somehow now interpreting the law? Well, I think before we figure out kind of what comes next, it's worth kind of thinking back at how far this kind of came from those dark days in January where everyone really expected there to be a major war. Like I remember watching, you know, the video streams of like the rockets going out of Iran toward Iraq and being like, oh man, this, this is over. Like there's no way to hold it back now. And I think that's what a lot of people were, were thinking. Uh, fortunately that red line that Trump said he had didn't get crossed. Like the, the U S soldiers, uh, you know, didn't die who were at those bases, but we came extremely close and I remember checking with a, a staffer on the Hill and being like, look, what can you guys do? What can what can be done about this? Like, this is crazy. Um, and he, you know, the staffer is a friendly guy, kind of views, you know, supports the JCPOA, that sort of thing. It's like, well, probably nothing. Like, there's there's not much that can be done about this. The, it, the politics are really difficult and so forth. And Trump was, you know, kind of dancing around like he just killed Ben Laden or something like that. So... Um, to then get, uh, you know, the intelligence briefings that came out that really disturbed Mike Lee, a really conservative Republican, uh, and other Republican senators and so forth. Like Mike Pompeo apparently really bombed at that hearing and just said, everybody get in line. This is the guy you gotta, you gotta back him up. And they said, no, you know, this is crazy. We've got to actually have a vote here. Um, and to get it out of both the Senate and the House right now, I think is uh, really remarkable that it actually happened in that environment and uh, a testament to kind of the backlash that a lot of uh, you know, senators faced across the nation and where they were hearing from people saying, look, we don't want a war. Yeah, I think the, the fact that Americans do not have an appetite for war is the key issue. If you look at, you know, if you look at this Congress, it's starkly divided by party lines. Everything that's voted is voted down party lines. The fact that you could actually get this Senate to pass a war powers resolution, you could get Republicans to to join this side, um, really is a testament to the fact that the American populace does not have an appetite for war at all. Um, That is exponentially more true now while we are in a pandemic. You know, I think the um, unemployment level in the U.S. is currently 14.7%, the highest it's been since the Great Depression. We have no idea what the, like, next, basically, year is going to hold in terms of an election. We have a presidential election. It doesn't even seem like there's an election going on. It is weird to be in May of a presidential election year. I mean, one candidate is basically invisible, Uh, The other one, unfortunately, is visible every single day. But we have impending doom for the economy or the choice to kill tens of thousands of more Americans. So this is not the climate for any kind of conflict whatsoever. And I think Trump knows that. I think President Trump is very, very keenly aware of that fact, especially because he ran on a platform that was against endless wars that critiqued all of the wars in the Middle East. And so it's interesting that he vetoes it. It's more, I think, a reflection of him wanting to flex his muscle as, quote, commander-in-chief than it is about wanting to go to war. Because I think he's made it clear on multiple occasions that that's not what he wants. And to be fair, if we're going back to January, one of the reasons we didn't escalate, the assumption of why you know World War III memes were going crazy was that Iran was going to retaliate. But Iran had a very, very measured reaction. 
Because in fact, as opposed to the way that we discuss it and we frame it as Iran being this irrational, fanatic country, it is acting oftentimes prudently to protect its own interests. And it is not in their interest to go to war. It's not in the US interest to go to war. So really now it's just a matter of, it's like a stalemate in terms of war. So what is the alternative? Arguably diplomacy. I think the this this fundamental question though, like how do okay, how do we stop a war? How do you actually restrain a president? And this is something that has been tested under successive administrations. And I think now more than ever, it feels like we are in a moment of transition where the US government does not work. The the Congress does not have the ability to check the president. Um and we haven't really figured out, okay, what are the institutions that we have in place to actually prevent somebody like Donald Trump to just say, I'm going to call the bluff of the norms uh, and sort of the unspoken rules of how the different branches of the government interact with one another, and I'm just going to push it to its limits, and what are you going to do about it? And so we've seen that, whether it's, you know, this unitary executive who can go to war with any country he wants in this case, or if it's him now, you know, essentially not, not act actively pardoning, but weighing on his justice department to let Michael Flynn off the hook, uh, the whole impeachment, like time after time, we've seen how this administration has just taken a wrecking ball to the normal boundaries of a presidential administration. And with the question of war, I think this is probably the area where it has been the least defined, but where we now may come up to a point where the president just says, no, I'm, I'm not going to listen to you. And Congress doesn't have anything it can do. I also, so I, th I think it needs to be thought through and in talking to people who, you know, uh, could play a big role uh, in a future administration. And, you know, in my asking, has Trump changed the way that we may go about conducting, you know, the business of an administration and how Congress, you know, gives power and authority to the administration? Or is Congress going to try to claw back some of that power? And there's no real thinking about that. There's no thinking, at least from the people who are poised to to win or to beat Trump, I don't hear a lot of thinking of, okay, Trump was a cautionary tale. And so we need to actually do things fundamentally to change and 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 rein in the power of the president because we've seen how this can be abused. Instead, it's like, well, you know, it just it matters who the who the American people elect. And even if it's less than half of the people that are even voting in these elections, that person who is elected should just have maximum power to do whatever they want. And that's where we are now. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because you know, this is clearly a politicized decision from, you know, start to finish. It's less about peace and diplomacy and more about November elections and looking a certain way and protecting your base and looking at my legitimacy. Um, but what what's interesting is that, you know, the JCPOA has many arms and it impacted many things. You know, it, it wasn't just prevent Iran from getting nukes. It wasn't just, you know, prevent uh, larger military conflicts. But there was also, you know, the, the notion of sanctions. You know, you have to give to get. And Iran you know, weighed the calculus and they said, okay, you know, we are willing to downgrade our nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. Um, and, you know, once we abrogated the JCUPOA, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of that sort of just went to the dust. Um, and now that, you know, the entire world is navigating this coronavirus pandemic, we're really seeing the impact of sanctions on Iran, which were snapped back um, after the U.S. left the deal. And we're seeing this, the impact of these sanctions uh, on 
people in a way that we haven't seen before. We've we've talked, you know, over and over about how, you know, before the coronavirus pandemic hit, you know, how sanctions impeded Iranians' access to certain technology or to, you know, medical devices and all this. And now the humanitarian sort of component of this is really come to light. Um, not, not too long ago, uh, AOC actually, backed by other prominent progressive Democrats, sent a letter to the Treasury uh, urging them to suspend sanctions on Iran and what, you know, what they said was a humanitarian gesture. And the Treasury, you know, I think just this week responded to AOC via letter. And, you know, I read through the letter and it was a lot of the same things that they're saying where, you know, we support humanitarian corridors and we've, you know, OFAC has released guidance and this and that. And then there's this one sentence that really stuck out to me. And it said that notwithstanding the Iranian regime's prioritization of politics over its people, the Treasury stands to facilitate access to this and that. And it's it's just, you know, it, it it's very reminiscent of Trump, you know, lambasting. Uh, Congress people for not understanding rule of law. Now we have the Treasury claiming that what they're doing is not prioritizing politics over people. They really truly believe that, uh, do they really truly believe that they're prioritizing people over politics using these sanctions? Yeah, I think you can really, you know, twist yourself into knots trying to, you know, make sense of the Trump administration statements and then like, lose your mind like at the sheer hypocrisy on a lot of the stuff. Uh, but it, it, it's really remarkable on the humanitarian front. There's a couple articles that have come out this week highlighting that this Swiss channel that, uh, you know, is much cited as effort of uh, the Trump administration's seriousness about the humanitarian issue. It hasn't processed a single transaction during the pandemic uh, in Iran. So you have this thing, it comes out in January, it's a pilot program. You have an initial batch uh, of uh, medical goods that were sent to Iran uh, that the Swiss had worked on for a very long time, in fact, over a year. Uh, and then a pandemic happens and the Trump administration says, well, we've got the Swiss channel. We've got the Swiss channel. And, you know, we, we really care about this stuff. It hasn't done a thing. It hasn't done a damn thing. It's ridiculous. So, you know, these guys don't care about it. Uh, and they've really got their geopolitical goals and everything else is, is just noise. And they're going to uh, lie and, you know, do whatever they need to do in order to continue on with their mission. So actually... It's a little bit, you know, deviating from the policy, but Jamal and Ryan, you both worked really closely on, you know, making sure the JCPOA came to fruition. Like, that was a really happy time. Um, I think a lot of people celebrated when it was finally passed. Um, you know, the reason I went to grad school was because this is the first time I was like, oh, there's a way to engage in politics where like, we can open up with the country that I was born in, very cool. Um, and I just, I remember, you know, I, we've, we talk about this with things like 9-11, we're like, where were you in 9-11? So where were you guys? Like, what, what did you do as soon as you watched that press conference where Trump announced, he's like, we're out? Because well, I went for a really long, angry walk and then decided to take a half day and go home <laughs> and mourn by myself. Huh. You know, I... I assume I was just like pulling together press releases and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to ask where were we when it was signed. And I was on my, mm. uh, we had already like locked up like the, you know, the one third in the Senate and the one third in the house to prevent a potential veto override. Uh, so I missed out on all the like 
you know, parties afterwards and stuff. But uh, I don't really recall too much other than being kind of pissed off at my desk about. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was on my honeymoon. (laughs) <laughs> when the deal was signed they're fairly cl- close are you guys to trying to tell us something <laughs> when was your honeymoon it was uh let's see like september 7th 2015 right, so my, mine was like two weeks after that so i'm really think- glad to hear your marriage has lasted longer than the best non-proliferation accord ever that's true yeah. so congratulations the to you guys still alive but uh you know, I, I like to think my marriage is on sounder footing than the JCPOA right now. <laughs> because you are both a participant and you participate? I, I do both. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Asa, where were you? Like, what was your whole... I mean, were you, so, we're still getting your PhD and you're like I among was, all the Iranian Americans. I was, but interestingly enough, um, in September of 2015, I was in Iran. Hmm. Um, and... It's actually, you know, I want to think about this humorously, but it's also actually incredibly sad because when I was in Iran in September of 2015, it was, uh, you know, after the deal had been agreed to and then implementation day, I believe, was in October. But there was a completely, and I had traveled to Iran for, you know, a decade um, between like 2004 and 2015 every year. And so, you know, I sort of went through the end of, saw the end of the Khatami era into the Ahmadinejad, into the Rouhani. And um, there was so much hope. There was so much joy in the idea that they had reached this turning point. Um, I was actually there uh, for two purposes, one to do research. And my cousin actually planned her wedding around when I was going for research. So, you know, I was there for a really joyous occasion and you could sense it was really palpable. The sort of uh, the shift in the way things were. And I remember going to Iran uh, at the beginning of 2010, uh, right after sort of the, the end of the, the last upheaval of the first stages of the green movement and juxtaposing that disillusionment with the system, with the hope that I saw in 2015 is really sort of a, a, a sad thing to reflect on right now because you know, when they went out there and they voted and they wanted to get this done, this is the Iranian populace, they never thought that the party that would actually undermine the whole thing would be the U.S. That's not what they were thinking. They were hopeful because they finally thought, okay, we have, you know, a semi-working system that at least is going to carry out this, um, the fact that we want an open society, the fact that we want, you know, sanctions relief, we want like to economically flourish, just all of these things that they were hopeful for wasn't taken away by their own government. It was taken away by the United States. But I think, so yeah, I, 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 it's really, it's amazing that you were in Iran and I think you saw that sense of hope. But I, I also, I think I want to hammer home the fact that I think it gave a lot of Iranian Americans hope for the first time as well. Um, you know, just on a very personal level, it was the first time where I actually considered, like, do I want to go into the U.S. government? Because are we actually on a trajectory where there's going to be a ribbon cutting ceremony for a U.S. embassy in Tehran? And if so, I want to be there. Um, and I think that's, you know, it was really inspiring to a lot of people. I wouldn't, I would have never studied nukes uh, without this deal. Because I will say, I think the one thing missing was that our community was maybe a little bit underprepared to talk about the ins and outs and the technicalities. Um, and so we had to sort of, 
give that, you know, we sort of outsource that to the more traditional field of allies. Um, and so, you know, I don't think we can lose all hope. Maybe the, this JCPOA hasn't materialized in the way that we wanted, and maybe it's going to die, you know, this death that we're watching it die. But I think that there's there's this this path remains. There's still hope, and there's this, still this entire new generation of people who I think are progressive. It's us. We are the future leaders. I think our community is much better prepared, and will continue to prepare so that when there is negotiation again, when there are, there's a table to sit at, we're going to be there this time. And so I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, the JCPOA has long lasting impacts beyond that are, that will, that will, that won't sunset. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, first of all, I don't think the JCPOA is dead by any stretch. I think, um, it's probably more alive now than it was a couple months ago. When it looked like Trump may, may, uh, likely get reelected, um, now I think that's why the Trump team is so desperate because and and you have articles about building a sanctions wall so that Joe Biden can't re-enter the JCPOA and how we have to go after the next administration and all this stuff. So I, th I think it's actually more alive than ever. But then the other thing is that I mean we talk a lot about the JCPOA. We're not obsessed with the JCPOA. Right? Oh, I am. Please don't we're speak on my behalf. We're not nuclear. Actually, okay. Mana is obsessed with the JCPOA and she's a nuclear wonk. And I'm, I'm, that's Ryan great. as well. Yeah. I have as well. But it's but it's a proxy. It's a it's a proxy for diplomacy with Iran. It's the only agreement we have. It's the only departure from forty years of stalemate and conflict that we've had. So if it was another agreement, we'd probably be all about that too. But for people who say, "Oh, this is a stale agreement. It's not working." Well, it's not dead yet. Okay, it's it's being kept alive because uh, you know it took a lot of time to actually get to this point. And the importance of it is, I mean, it is the nuclear side of things, but it's also this is the one touch point we have. And there has been no alternative. There's no alternative that has been presented for, I mean, as Iranian Americans, how does this situation change? How does the situation change for us where we can freely travel back and forth and we don't have to worry about war and sanctions and all these things? This is, this is all we've got. And if somebody has a better idea, I haven't heard it yet.